Welcome, hunters, non-hunters, hikers, bikers, conservatives, fiscal conservatives, kayakers, gardeners, socialists, liberals, libertarians, comedians, readers, non-readers, tree huggers, film lovers, artists, craftswomen and men, and all the hard-working and caring people on this planet. Welcome to my podcast, How for the Wild. Reports and stories from my hikes and the days I've spent alone living in the mountains and desert canyons. Reporting to you the changes I've seen and how it has changed me. Adding my love for literature, food, film, music, and drink along the way. I promise my listeners, I will not use popular buzzwords that are dead and have no real meaning, such as sustainable and green. Instead, I will report directly from your backyard and mine what is happening in the farmlands, mountains, and trees, or lack thereof. Join with rangers, scientists, wildland firefighters, veterans, backcountry folk, and astrologists, the men and women on the front lines that have inspired me working to save these last remaining wild places. Please join me in reconnecting to that something that's greater than us and what we can do to return this ball and space we live upon closer to the paradise it was just a few decades ago. Please support us, join us, and keep listening. I appreciate you as much as I love the wild and what we can do to keep it. Thank you. Hi, welcome to the very first episode of my podcast, How for the Wild. I decided to kick off the opening of the podcast with an on-the-road national park series because it encompasses, well, that which I love, hiking in the backcountry, visiting our national parks, the beauty of the land and the space that we still have in this great nation, and also what we stand to lose. In this series, I'm interviewing rangers and the people from the wild places to see what their take on where we are and the needs of the parks. The very first person I chose to interview, or rather, it was it felt more like a sit-down than it did an interview. It felt like two old friends uh, sharing. That, that was the feel of this conversation. But I chose ranger and Navajo man Ravis Henry to open the, the series and the podcast, in part because I feel Native Americans and indigenous people should have the largest say or voice, both for our national parks and where we find ourselves today. They shouldn't just simply be noted, but should have a lead role in the discussion in these places because, well, they still live and have occupied them longer than any of us have. But also because... And you'll, you'll hear this in the interview or the sit-down. They still have that connection that I feel the majority of Westerners, city folk, and even the suburb folk have lost. 
my grandmother still resides there, and that's where my umbilical cord is buried, so my roots are in that place. In doing my research, I found that he was chosen of all the rangers to represent the United States in the World Congress of Rangers. And you'll hear in this podcast, all the rangers around the world meet and conference about their needs, how they can better protect these places, and where we are with climate change. This interview also encompasses so many of the threads in the conversations with other rangers and the people that I mentioned in the introduction, as well as that feeling of respect and reverence for the, these hikes into the backcountry, the wild. In the interview, you'll hear mutual respect, I think, because I come from farmers myself, and I still farm, so I still have that connection to the land. And, of course, hike and live out in it. And I also want to say that I'm not glorifying Native Americans, nor do I have some overly perfervid expectation. I don't put them on a pedestal. In the interview, you'll hear I hit Ravis up with some pretty difficult questions about... That's my dog has joined us. She, a 14-year-old, has woken up. <laughs> You're going to hear animal noises often in the introductions, um, and I'm not editing it out. Hi, baby. Audrey, my cat, has also joined us. So... I want to make it clear that I'm, I'm not glorifying these people. I had Ravis up with some difficult questions about what at times I've observed. And he speaks freely of what so many Native Americans struggle with, which it's another reason that it's cool we began with this interview because I think it mirrors, and he says as such, what our country as a whole is struggling with. He says uh, oftentimes, hey, we're no different. Drugs, unemployment, struggles. But that's also another reason why I respect these people, is that they're quick to admit their faults, their shortcomings and struggles, and what uh, so many of us other races and cultures in this country are dealing with. But something that I think many of we Westerners have lost is a certain humility or uh, ability. We have such a more difficult time admitting our faults and getting to it. And something I want to make clear to my listeners, this is my church. I don't go to a building with statues anymore i go into the wild and that's exactly how i feel about it it's why i'm doing the podcast in the first place it's about what we stand to lose you know i see in these wild places it's how i connect to god creation you know we didn't create this we didn't create nature and what's out there and i'm not one of those folks that thinks they're better than those that don't believe in God, or if someone doesn't believe in God, they're lesser than someone that does. I think it's actually a, a matter of semantics, meaning that anything of immense beauty that causes us to be awestruck and humbled, that's God. And I think so many people have felt that, they just don't call it God, or maybe like myself, from what I've experienced in organized religions, is a lot of hypocritical hubris that has turned many of us away from that spiritual connection. But regardless, whether you believe in God or not, you're welcome here on this podcast. So, hey, welcome. Join in. You're going to hear a lot of beauty. You'll hear descriptions of the hikes, of what I've seen, what I've observed. And then you get the voices of these other backcountry folk that are out in it, protecting these places and working in them. And also, Ravis offers uh, solutions to these. There's some pretty powerful moments in the podcast. So I thank you, and let's get to it.
Okay. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself for the audience? Say, introduce yourself in any way that you want. Greetings, folks. My name is uh, Ravis Henry, and I belong to the Towering House clan, born for the Coyote Pass Hamas clan. Uh, my grandfathers are the Salt People clan and the Tangle People clan, and I am a member of the Navajo Diné tribe here in the southwest Four Corners region of the United States. And I originally come from a place called Alamo, New Mexico. That's where my mother is from. And my grandmother still resides there. And that's where my umbilical cord is buried. So my roots are in that place. Although I was born here in Chinle and raised in Canyon de Chez and uh, currently reside with uh, my father and my grandmother on the Canyon Rim. And uh, that's who I am. And that's how I identify myself. And that's how we properly introduce ourselves as Navajo people to new relatives uh, and to just let folks know where we're coming from. And in this way of identifying myself in my native language uh, signifies me as a five-fingered spiritual being on this earth. And that's who I am. And I currently work with the National Park Service here at Canyon de Chez National Monument with the interpretation team. And I've been doing this awesome career so far for the last 10 years of my life. Nice. Um, right off the bat, I think it's important for the audience to know, you said that the your umbilical cord is buried. Is that a Navajo tradition or a tradition to your tribe? It, it, it is a definitely a very common practice for a lot of indigenous communities around the world. Um, but for us specifically as Navajo, it, it is very important that the umbilical cord is taken back to where the child's mother is from and, and is buried or, or given back to the earth or placed under a tree there so that the child's identity is rooted where his or her mother is from. Um, and that's one of the beauties about our culture is we're matrilineal, so um, our bloodline is through the, the women, and the women are in charge, the women are the boss around here, so our mothers are the most important people, or should be the most important people in our life. And we honor them by introducing ourselves the way we do and letting folks know where we come from, and that's where our mother comes from as well. That's pretty impressive. Um connected to some of what I've heard from some of the other interviews um, some of it in particular um, Regina Whitescomb mm -hmm. um, she's a U tribe member I don't know if I told you that where is your mother now? my mother resides um, in Navajo, New Mexico that's where she currently lives and um, she's just over the hill I guess you could say over the hill 60 miles over the hill, sixty miles, <laughs> and is uh, that relationship tight or? Yes, it is. It's it's a very tight relationship. 
I actually drove 60 miles from her house to come to work today. You know, um, the relationship between mothers specifically generally is really strong with our culture and with our people and um, folks make those sacrifices to be with family all the time. Family and the idea of eh in our language is very big for the Navajo people. And when you can, you know, we're, we're encouraged to see our parents, be with our grandparents and, you know, take some time away from what we're doing to just be, the, be with them and keep that bond strong. And I have that with my mother uh, as well as my father. Nice. And you mentioned that you live on a canyon rim. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Well, it's not literally at the canyon rim. We're here at the edge looking down into the canyon. Um, but yeah, we're, we're on the canyon rim area. And this is where I grew up. And it's actually not too far from the Welcome Center here at Canyon de Chez. Uh, so this whole area around the park headquarters, the Welcome Center, all the way down to Thunderbird Lodge, um, up to our home is kind of the places where I grew up as a kid, running around and being able to go up to the edge of the canyon and see it and play on the rocks and then come down and drink some water from the visitor center, welcome center here, and have some lunch at the Thunderbird Lodge. This whole area was our our jungle and our, and our, our uh, playground of where we as kids grew up. And I think being able to grow up in this place has been a great experience and a great reminder that uh, no matter where we call home, it, it's important to take care of it. Yeah, it's a big part of what I'd like to emphasize. And uh, we have something in common in that um, I also work in the place where I jungled as a mm -hmm. kid and I uh, had moved away and came back specifically uh, to be uh, at home and with family and I more than agree about taking care of place. What are your thoughts on on climate change and, and where we are and how are we doing as a species in taking care of place? Well, climate change or, or rather I should say environmental change is definitely a very challenging topic to try to actually understand, especially for folks like myself who are still kind of on the younger side, where we haven't really seen in our lifetime much of the changes, but when we talk to our elder folks and when we listen to, to their stories of the past, there's been a lot of changes that have taken place. A lot of things have occurred. There's stories that our people have and that our families have shared through ceremonies about this type of ordeal taking place with changes to the environment and and how the seasons will be shifted and so forth. And we've only heard it. Uh, and it seems like now some of us who have heard these stories realize that those changes are happening as we speak. And the cause of them, you know, is, is also hard to pinpoint. You know, is it something that's been happening since the lifespan of the earth itself? Or is it something that we as five-fingered people, as humans, are 
um, kind of leading the cause to, to that. And I think for us as Navajo people and for myself um, following these oral traditions and these oral stories, uh, these changes were meant to happen, but I think some of the changes are happening a little more stronger than they should be, and that's because of the things that we're doing as as five-fingered people, as as a human race. And here at Canyon de Shea, we've seen some changes that have occurred, uh, and one of those is the droughts that are happening and um, the monsoons that aren't coming anymore, and the winds are getting stronger, um, storms are getting more powerful, whether it's rainstorms or or uh, snowstorms, but they're more sporadic and they're not regular anymore. And temperature itself seems to be getting hotter in the summer times. And in my little lifetime, I've seen a few changes where, you know, we did have snow as early as mid-October and, and now they don't come until December. But thankfully this year we had some snow just last week and and then the monsoons would last anywhere from end of June through mid-September. And the past couple of years, it's one or two storms if we're lucky. And it's really challenging for farmers like my family to try to continue with our traditional practices such as dry farming and, and uh, growing crops without irrigating and relying on the rain. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of changes happening. There's a lot going on in in this part of the world as well, as I'm sure it is all over, all over this world itself. And it seems to be all pinpointing back to the environmental change that's occurring. Um, so yeah. Can you explain to our audience because a lot of people <clears throat> are not going to understand what you mean when you say monsoon. So monsoons in the southwest is a time period when in the summertime the uh, the rainstorms become constant. So in the southwest um, in the summer heat usually we'll get one big storm after a heat wave and that big storm produces <clears throat> quite a bit of rain and it comes with a lot of lightning and um, thundering and, and, and it may drop it could drop a lot of rain in a very short period but what happens is it, it turns into a constant sequence of where it rains almost daily um, during the monsoon seasons we could wake up and it'd be blue skies early in the morning not a cloud in sight then it starts to get hot and then by noontime the clouds build up Late after mid mid to late afternoon, then we get the storms. It's a thunderstorms, lightning storms, and we get a drizzle of rain to half inch of rain dropped on us in a short period of time, and then it disappears, and then it does the same thing again the next day. So that's the monsoon season for the southwest, and it could last two weeks on average, or it could go up to you know two months, just depending on the system itself. And you've seen that radically change in your lifetime? I have. I definitely have. The past two years have been 
almost like there hasn't been any monsoon season, that, uh, a monsoon season for us at all. I can speak a little bit to the drought myself and chime in if there's something that you hear that's incorrect. I've been coming here for the last 20 years, <laughs> probably more, and I noticed um, I was worried that your cottonwoods down in the in the valley were going to die. Um, and this is the first year where I saw that they, they looked a lot better <laughs> than they have in uh, previous years. So I was happy to see that. But I, uh, I kind of understand about drought and climate change. And I'll let you know because I don't know if you know in, in parts of if the West knows what the East is experiencing and the Midwest or vice versa. But we're in serious trouble there as well we have kind of a reverse of what you have we mm -hmm. have rain like we i have never seen um we have thunderstorms that rock your house um and what used to be a thunderstorm that would roll in and last 15 20 minutes maybe half an hour now we're experiencing for days mm. days so it's as if my area from the Midwest, Kentucky, um, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky area, um, up into Michigan, uh, down uh, Virginia, all the way to Georgia, we're experiencing, well, it's a, uh, more than a monsoon. It, it just doesn't stop. And it's, it's quite, frankly, it's kind of scary. The thunderstorms are scary how long they last and how vicious they are. And uh, even the visual of the lightning, what used to be a crack in the sky, now looks like a, a tree trunk size <laughs> lightning. Um, in addition to that, we're losing trees, lots of trees. Uh, we're losing our elder, um, our oak and, and, and cotton would seem to be doing all right, but pine in our area is almost eliminated all the way mm -hmm. up into Michigan. I went up into the Upper Peninsula and was stunned at how many pines uh, we're losing. And uh, before this, more than five years ago, probably it started two decades ago because our seasons now, it's like we've lost fall. We go summer almost in the winter. Um, we don't have the fall that we used to and what's happened and we don't have the hard freezes so the pine beetle and certain insects that usually did die now we see swarms and they're they've attacked the trees the mm -hmm. pines are almost non-existent in the lakes where i used to where i still fish but mm -hmm. fish and and swim around in, and that's it's pretty stark and quite frightening so i just figured i would tell you what's happening in another area that you might not be aware of um what do you what are your thoughts on what we can do? What can we do about this? Is it That's a it's a big question and I think we all have different opinions and different ideas and one of the things I think we we need to do a lot more today uh, in, especially in the Western world, is a lot of what's happening, a lot of the changes that are occurring, and a lot of the ways to deal with them, the answers have always been there. 
and the answers rely or the the answers are with the indigenous people around the world who who I think have always understood the processes of the land and have always been a part of the land and not separate which seems to be separate in the western concept <clears throat> I think some people are starting to realize that that a lot of the things that didn't make sense have always made sense with indigenous people and there's a way of, of viewing the world and a way of understanding some of these situations that keep us in balance and for us as Navajo people it's definitely that way to where we see ourselves as a part of the land not separate we we, we identify ourselves as the children of Mother Earth and Father Sky and that all beings around us whether they be the plant people, the insect people, the bird people, the water people, the mountains, everything is alive and and we are no different, we're no better than them. That's how our traditional stories are and there's a specific way to create that kinship with the land around us. No matter where we go upon this earth, you know, we're, we're told to be respectful and be humble and be reverent among the lands that we that we walk and the air that we breathe and there's a certain type of respect before we harvest plants before we take down trees before we <clears throat> take down an animal there's a certain process that that should follow and i think these are some of the old teachings traditions that for us as navajo people have become a custom but also there's a lot of um, there's a lot of understanding behind it you know before you take down the tree what is it what's going to happen if you take down one specific tree versus another um, or why do we burn a type of wood versus another type of wood and even for us as as um, people of the southwest you know we, we chose specific trees to build our homes out of we chose specific areas to get our water from. The animals as well. And certain times of the year we hunt, not all the time we hunt. And then certain animals we look for, not all animals we hunt, not all animals we eat. And, and there's a reason for each of these. And the reasons behind all of these can't be shared in a short time. It takes years to comprehend uh, the Navajo mindset of how we see the world and to better understand this whole idea of environmental change or climate change and to find some of the answers I think it, it's going to take some people to actually step away from their western ideas and western concepts and, and learn from the indigenous people. There are still a lot of indigenous people out there around the world that are still left today there are 567 or so federally recognized tribes in the United States and each one of those tribes have their own connection to the lands that they are part of and they know the different plants, they know the, the mountains, they know the, the landscape and they can probably come up with great um, answers to try to help fix the problem in that specific area. And not even just the United States, it's all over the world. There's still a lot of indigenous people all the way down through Central America to South America, 
the indigenous people, the aboriginals in, in Australia, the indigenous people in Africa. Um, many of them still have a lot of their common practices and, and their, their ceremonies or the rituals are still tied to the land itself. And um, I, I share this because I, I've attended a, a conference of um, rangers from around the world back in 2016. And in 2016, there was the uh, World Ranger Congress that was held in Estes Park, Colorado. And I brought together rangers from 60 plus countries around the world. And many of these rangers, they were indigenous people of, of the countries that they were representing. And I was asked to come out there to represent the National Park Service, but also represent the indigenous people of the United States and provide the official welcoming for the invitees to the conference and, and provide the blessing uh, for the convening that's to take, that was to take place that year. And um, it was an honor to be able to provide that and to represent our people and the many different indigenous people of these lands. But with that also establish you know, an opportunity to create kinship with other people around the world. And, and it's during that time that I heard a lot of different stories from the people of Kenya and the many different Aborigines in Australia to um, folks from Brazil and Chile and, and um, really just people from all over, the, all over this world. And many of them coming from their indigenous backgrounds have similar concepts to what we as Navajo people have and how we view the world and how we take care of the land. And being introduced to that just makes it stronger for me to believe that we as indigenous peoples have always had the answers. And it's just gonna take some folks to take some time to listen to us and put that information all together, you know, to understand why the rains are getting stronger, you know, why the the earth is moving more, you know, why the, the droughts are coming and so forth. And I think really it's just about finding that balance once again. And we as Navajo people believe that as five-fingered spiritual beings, we were created as the caretakers of this world we live in. And we are the ones in our stories we're told are were created to, to look like the deities who created us and to be like them and to move like them and speak like them. But unlike them, we would remain as physical beings here on this earth. And our first important um, role is to ensure the balance and harmony between all living things. And when there is no balance or when the balance is off, we're told to restore that balance. And that balance could be anywhere from just within us personally or to the whole world that we're a part of. And as Navajo people, there are certain ceremonies, certain stories that are told, certain songs that are sung that are utilized to reestablish that balance and that harmony, different teachings that we follow. And I think if we pay attention to some of those and, and find that respect, you know, we as a human race might be able to 
not change what's already happened, but find the balance and, and to make sure that this world we live in remains a beautiful and plentiful and resourceful world uh, for us, but more importantly for our children and our grandchildren. And they say as Navajo people that we live today and the decisions that we make today is not for us personally, but it's going to eventually affect our grandchildren and then their grandchildren. So we say that we live today and we, we speak our, our, our language, we, we have our ceremonies, and we, we try to restore the balance and harmony today so that one day our grandchildren, their grandchildren, will have an opportunity to grow up and live in a beautiful world that's plentiful, resourceful, with clean air and clean water and the traditional herbs still growing and the plants and so forth. And that's what we live for as Navajo people. So I truly believe that the answers lie within the indigenous communities around the world. I think that's super wise and um, generally depending, I just let the uh, individual that I'm speaking to speak. But it seems on this one that, that um, some commonalities <coughs> are happening. So I'm going to jump in because it's a big part of the podcast is, is um, to teach and learn and, and um, try to, well, to do something about this instead of talking and maybe crying, etc. action. And I can tell you what attracted me um to the native people when I first came so um I didn't say to you and I wonder about that I, I introduced myself as an instructor and I come from farmers so in the Midwest in Kentucky and Ohio and Indiana mm -hmm. it's super important um and one of the things I noticed when I started teaching at university was people from the rural areas such as myself, um, were embarrassed or afraid to say that, you know, they come from farmers. And one of the things I always did as a teacher, introduce myself as I come from farmers and I'm proud of it. Mm -hmm. And that was to let them know that, you know, they shouldn't be shy about that or, um, embarrassed. Uh, and of course I've, I've experienced people try to put shame on you because you, because if you're from that, yeah. one of the first things I always hear when I say I'm from Kentucky or that I'm farmers and they're like, well, you're wearing shoes and, you know, stuff like that. But um, what attracted to me, so I grew up in Kentucky and then I moved out to California. I was working uh, for a corporation. Mm -hmm. I wrote their training manuals and went around the country and trained people and set up training facilities. And then I landed in California. And one of the things, the reason I stayed in California for a while was I liked that there was such a mix of, of people from all cultures. Mm -hmm. And so I learned from that and also my literary heroes kind of live out there. Well, when I quit, I drove around the country and the Four Corners area and the Circle of Canyons just drew me in. And the people telling me their stories and I felt connected because as farmers, we're connected to the land. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we're as spiritually connected. So I, I agree with that indigenous people Partly because um, I think you respect it greater um, than most people do. 
you understand that you live off of it you understand the interconnectedness that every single action there is a reaction that that it's science and it is mm-hmm. what i love about the navajo and the youth and the a few hopi that i met is that you understand that interconnection and it goes deeper than just a selfish well if i do this then that does this etc and i think that's a, a, a definitely a western view but, but you're so deeply entwined and it is um your religion mm-hmm. if, I, if i would use that word so that really attracted me to this area because i'm also you know from farmers and under, understood an interconnectedness i think i lost it for a while and then came back to it mm-hmm. um and one of the things when I was talking to some other folks um, that have to drive a while, and I want to get to that in a minute, but and also to uh, Regina White's going and others, is that one of the ways we can make a change is going back to our heritage, or even if that's not your heritage, as simple as a simple thing as gardening or working in your yard. Um, I think it's important to grow food that you actually eat. And you can see the changes, but if you're never doing that, if you're never, if you don't plant a seed in mm-hmm. the ground or put a plant in there and nurture it and see what it takes, um, you not only will you miss the changes. For example, blight's gotten worse with the excessive amount of, of rain. There's a um, a worm. So our squash plants. When I grew up, we grew squash, and we would we would yield. My God, five sometimes upwards of 15 20 squash per plant now it's yellow squash that grows like a weed you're lucky mm-hmm. if you get one or two before it gets the the bud rot um and worms that go in there and, mm-hmm. and ends it so just in doing that you 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 can recognize the changes and see it but the other part is when you learn when, when you do that you understand how interconnected you you will mm-hmm. gain a spiritual respect to it even if you don't understand it or quite know how to articulate that it is there and another story i'll I'll share with you as a becoming a professor of writing and film i got involved in a film project and so i left my backyard my garden unattended i didn't Mm. grow for a year or so and in that short period of time about two years i under i saw how wild in part wild but i also noticed that there were there were fewer birds and types of birds because i wasn't tending and and doing certain things like i i realized red birds squirrels and deer depend on our gardens as much as we do uh sometimes to an infuriating state so (laughs) me and my brother shout out to my brother helped me um we built a um chicken coop basically mm-hmm. around the garden so that I could stop the, the squirrels were the worst and then the red birds would get in there and peck and get the seed but when you stop doing that or you never do it you don't understand mm-hmm. that I would say I, I have a different view than most of the people around me in my area and that's a shame because most of us came from farmers in that area too mm-hmm. but they we no longer have an understanding I don't really d- differentiate too much between uh, certain, well, really plants and animals uh, and human beings. And I think if more people held that kind of reverence, 
we would be in a, in a much better place. Mm-hmm. But because we're so destructive and wasteful and don't understand, you know, I, I don't know if the earth could handle this amount of people, period, but certainly not in the lack of our understanding and how wasteful and destructive that we are. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you brought up and I think is really important to learn that balance and, and one of the things we can do is grow a garden, go into your very backyard, um, grow a tree. Mm-hmm. We, Lord knows we need, we need more of them. Um, uh, and we need trees to breathe people. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, but enough about it. I just wanted to insert that and share that. And that's, that's why I keep coming back here. I think we kind of, kind of have that connection but like i said i think you that the indigenous people have a deep well much deeper understanding mm-hmm. to the spiritual level well there you have it folks balance i wanted to remind our listeners of some of the uh, wisdom that ravis had stated in this interview and the term that he used eh, the um respect Navajos and many uh, Native American people have for the matriarchy Uh, it's instilled within their culture their ceremony and rituals and I think this is something that Westerners have in common with Native Americans and in particular the Navajo and something that we can draw on and that is we love our mothers we do and I think this is a good starting point. You know, there's no stronger bond than a mother has for her kin or her children. You know, we see that replicated in most of nature, right? And so I thought this would be a good point to make that maybe one of the ways that we return this planet to the paradise it was and that we, we take care of mother earth is we praise we respect and we love our mothers more and we don't forget that bond and in doing that 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 will carry over to caring for the earth you know it's no mistake that the native peoples coined the term mother earth you know we know that's where it came from and so I can't help but to think if we praise and respect and love our mothers more that will just replicate into caring for this planet as well. So I just thought it was a good point to make. There's two more episodes. Episode 2 and 3 um, continue with Ravis and his uh, wisdom. And there's some pretty interesting insight here and things that I think uh, many people have not heard in uh, our history books and our more recent history. So that's one to look forward to. And then in episode three, we discuss at length uh, Canyon de Chez. How is Canyon de Chez unique from the other uh, national parks and parks in general? And you get a really good description of what this place is as i try to do when i visit uh, these places is to give you a recording from the actual hike or the actual place that's one of the important things for me to give to listeners so that you get just a 
one degree or level deeper and you get to feel what that place is and hopefully some part of that carries over into the uh, podcast i hope this has been uh, fruitful enlightening and maybe in some way changed us that would be really cool uh, especially if it changed us in the measure of taking care of this place that we live in and maybe making it better yeah okay thank you much i'm out